Welcome to the latest episode of Independence, the FIEC podcast. Uh, my name's Phil Topham, Executive Director, and with me uh, is John Stevens, our National Director. Hello, John. Hi, Phil. Good to be with you. Uh, now, we're going to take a little pause from our podcast every couple of weeks to do something we're kind of loosely calling in the news. And um, Basically, we're going to do a roundup of some current affairs, things that have been happening uh, across the, the, the news wires this last couple of weeks, and just think about how they might relate to Christian ministry. So that's what we're going to do, John, for the next half an hour or so. Worth saying, we would have had... Adrian Reynolds in on this as well, but his wife Celia's got COVID and he thinks he's going to get COVID. So he's not, he's not coming. So it's just the two of us today, but normally we would be uh, triple uh, heading it. But um, let's get into it like this, John. I-, I wonder if you can tell me what you've been doing this last couple of days. And I want to relate that to something that's been going on uh, in the news. So, so where have you been this sort of past few days in your ministry? What have you been doing? Yeah, in the last couple of days, actually, I've been um, largely engaging with various kind of Bible colleges. Um, so it's been a real privilege. I was at Oak Hill College um, uh, having a lunch with Independent students there talking a little bit about, about independency and the work of FIEC, current situation of the culture and state of the gospel in um, a kind of Britain. Um, then uh, the day afterwards, I was preaching at chapel at London Seminary. So I was preaching on Psalm 96. So it was again great to be with the students and then have lunch um, with them afterwards. And then um, yesterday, I was engaging with one of the learning communities from the Union School of Theology. I teach a master's course there on contemporary church issues for evangelicals. And they've got some learning communities that are doing that based on some videos. I did a couple of years ago. So I was engaging with a group of the students um, actually based uh, out of Westminster Chapel who um, are are working on that module and they wanted to just talk through um, the assessment process and just ask a range of questions about the material that we'd been covering. So I've spent a couple couple of days really engaging with three different um, uh, institutions that are training people for biblical ministry, um, independent students. Um, And then interestingly, next week, I'm on Tuesday, I'm teaching at Edinburgh Theological Seminary Mm. who also run a course for independent students that's headed up by our Scotland director, Andy Hunter. Fantastic. So you've been engaging with the leaders of tomorrow. And let's think about the leaders of today, not necessarily Christian leaders, but the leaders we've been looking at in our news this last couple of weeks. We've got to start in number 10, John. What a week it's been for Boris Johnson. What a, a month, what a couple of months. What What's going on there? What's your take on it? Yeah, I think leadership is a massive issue in the news at the moment. And it really boils down to questions of integrity and honesty. Mm. Um, so I think uh, we've got a, a prime minister who it's been revealed through the whole period of the COVID crisis when he and his government have been imposing very severe restrictions on the population, banning people from uh, meeting together, even in their own homes, preventing people from being able to be with their relatives in hospital when they're kind of um, sort of ill or dying, preventing being able to meet people in care homes. So when when the vast majority of the population has kind of gone with those regulations because they've believed that they're in the best interest of the public as a whole, um, they're aware of protecting people from this terrible illness. We discover that um, actually within Downing Street itself and even within the Downing Street flat, there seem to have been parties and events that at the very least seem not to be within the spirit of what Mm. um, the uh, regulations are intended and may well culminate in a uh, kind of criminal behaviour that leads to fines being imposed. So that has been imposed. More and more pictures have come out showing what's been happening there. The Met Police are investigating yeah. at least 13 kind of different um, uh, sort of a, a, a events. Um, there's a real uh, kind of fight on the Tory back benches as to whether Boris Johnson should stay as Prime Minister. Some have been submitting letters saying that he Uh, They want to challenge his leadership. Others like David Davis have called for him to uh, go. Just a couple of days ago, John Major um, uh, basically spoke of the damage that he was doing to the Tory party as they were keeping him in in office. So uh, the question of what what kind of leadership is uh, uh, kind of the leadership that we, we need? 
And at one level, I think it, it reveals that the dilemmas of leadership, the Tory party chose Boris Johnson to be their leader, knowing what kind of character he has. He has a long history of not having told the truth. Um, right back to school, it was said that he was someone who didn't think the ordinary rules applied to him. So that was no surprise at all. But he was seen as the man to get Brexit done, um, to connect with the Red Wall uh, constituencies. And he won for the Tories, a very significant mm. um, majority. So you've got this tension of somebody who seems to lack integrity in the way that they do things, but yet is a, a, a kind of a winner. And that's a dilemma for people. Is that leadership that we're prepared to support um, and keep in place because of what it achieves? Um, I think we see Boris Johnson in office adopting a whole variety of strategies to try to remain in post. Mm. Um, so we've seen him, uh, for example, making slurs against Keir Starmer on the whole issue of whether or not he was responsible for the failure of the CPS to prosecute um, sort of Jimmy Savile. Um, there's obviously been a, a flood of initiatives being launched, of new policies to give the impression that there's kind of momentum and there's direction and the, the future the future will um, be better. There have been reshuffles uh, of the government and new people brought into post, all, all of which is a way of shoring up his uh, kind of position. So I, I think this just raises all sorts of questions about leadership and what character qualities are required for leadership, what disqualifies from uh, 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 leadership. So historically, it's always been the case that lying to parliament is a cause for a person to resign um, their their post. Um, uh, Boris Johnson has said there were no parties. John Major said, well, you look at the evidence, these are clearly things that are parties Mm. that they knew knew was going on. So uh, I think that's a a sort of a a real indictment of leadership and and, and kind of public um, morality um, at the moment. I think think Boris Johnson has been to more parties during lockdown than I've been to in my entire life or indeed been invited to. It is extraordinary. But before we get into leadership character, which I think is a massively important issue, how as Christians are we to respond to what's come out of Downing Street, given how we encouraged all our churches to follow the COVID rules? We followed them ourselves. Uh, I followed them in my own home. I, I didn't gather for birthdays and significant events with members of my family. Uh, my, my grand turned 90 in COVID. We couldn't gather with her. But what, how do we respond to this? What's the, the right response? Well, I think it's easy to be angry when we see other people not keeping rules that we've kept ourselves. Um, uh, but I think at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean to say that, to say that those rules weren't right and they weren't for the benefit of the public um, as, as a whole. So I think it would be easy to it, judge the whole kind of COVID approach, the rules that were adopted, the restrictions that we experienced on the basis that within the heart of government, they seem not to have been um, observed. I think it would be a mistake to do that. I mean, COVID has been a, a real crisis. I think we can be very grateful to God that we seem to be emerging from that crisis, that Omicron turned out to be not as sort of damaging or as significant as we thought it would be, that the vaccines seem to have made an incredible difference. Um, uh, The Prime Minister actually seemed to make the right call in relation to um, Omicron and restrictions. um, And we have the prospect of all legal restrictions being removed. So I think that although it was difficult, many of those um, steps that were taken probably did save lives. I mean, it's hard to know. You have to make judgments at the time. It's easy to look back in hindsight and say what would have happened when you've got full knowledge. So I think um, obviously there's a right and proper place for reviewing whether the strategy was right or not. Um, uh, I think you can only do that in the light of all that information. So I think the danger for us is of being uh, angry because of the way that others have behaved. And that never justifies um, our own wrongdoing. Mm. Just because you see somebody else speeding doesn't mean that therefore you choose to break the speed limit yourself. And I think that's a 
a big mistake that we can make. So characteristics of leaders then, we, we, we have often said in Christian ministry that too often we have elevated gifting over character. Is that the case in Downing Street? Is that the case in the Conservative Party? Am I overgeneralising? Well, I think that's exactly the problem. There's, there's this tension between a kind of wanting to win and wanting to achieve outcomes and being willing to compromise character in order to be able to do that. It's not in a sense for me to judge that in relation to the prime minister and the, and the party. But certainly I think that within Christian circles, we can see that people have too easily done that. We've seen a number of scandals of appalling abuses of leadership, um, of uh, kind of charismatic, gifted, capable Christian leaders uh, who in many ways flaws in their characters and their ways of behaving have perhaps been overlooked because of what they seem to be able to achieve. Um, and I think that's a great danger because the Bible emphasises as, as a primary uh, quality for appointment to leadership, uh, a godly character, a way of relating to other people, a, a, hu a humility. Um, and I think churches make the big mistake and Christian organisations make a big mistake if they, um, in a sense, privilege, privilege the ability to get a job done, to achieve a goal, to achieve a mission at the expense of um, character. I think the Bible warns us that we should never in leadership put um, capability ahead of character as if that's the most important um, uh, sort of thing. So I think in, in the world, the murky world of politics, that happens all the time. We do have to recognise there's a difference between the church and the world. We're, we're not at all surprised that that is the way the world operates. Um, uh, the, the real problem is when that comes into the church. So I think as we look at what's going on in politics and in leadership in public life, as Christians, we ought to be thinking that that is just a warning to us that we do not want to see that replicated in um, the life of uh, the church. Is one of the problems there success metrics? So if you look at politics, it's very easy to measure success. Um, has Brexit been done? Have we won an election? Can we get policies through that we, we put in our manifesto? It is the problem that we bring success metrics into the church. We try and apply levels of success in ways that perhaps the Bible doesn't ask us to? I would say I think that is a danger. We're, we're more focused on achieving a goal than we are about the way that we get there. Um, and actually, I think in, in Christian circles, it's easy in church leadership to feel an intense pressure to have to achieve outcomes um, that will be measured. Uh, that might be to uh, enhance our own status. It might be to um, uh, kind of continue to gain the support of those who are funding us, those who are supporting our ministries. It might be out of a wrong competitiveness against others in which we want to demonstrate that we are more successful than they are. And I think leaders do have um, an immense pressure that falls on them to deliver. And therefore, congregations and people can have a tendency to want to choose leaders who offer that prospect of delivery. And as I said, uh, there's a danger that they can then overlook that form of leadership. Um, and, and again, we too often borrow models from the world of what leadership is like. So I think we, we, we rather like the world have a tendency to either want the charismatic personality or alternatively what we want is the kind of the entrepreneurial leader who will um, achieve success. And in some ways that, that follows from a lack of faith that the, 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 the mission of God and the achievement of what um, God is wanting to do in the world falls on our shoulders to be able to deliver rather than us trusting that he is the one who's accomplishing his mission and we join with him uh, in that. So we can borrow models of leadership from the world that appear to deliver success and bring them into the church. One of the other kind of leadership things that's been in the news this week um, has a serious edge to it, but perhaps is a little bit more frivolous. Uh, West Ham United manager David Moyes 
he decided to pick for a game earlier in the week, Kurt Zuma, centre-half, who had been pictured in all the papers, but basically abusing his cat um, for, for want of a, no other way to describe it, essentially. Um, I mean, that caused an uproar. I've never sort of seen animal cruelty conflated with football in all the years I've been watching it, but that's what seemed to happen. I mean, what, what did that show? Was, was, was David Moyes right to, to say, well, Kurt Zuma is still my best player in that position? So despite all that was surrounding him, I mean, he had apologised. Was, was that the right call? Well, again, I think this is cut, cuts down to issues of character and the fact that people who are leaders and highly paid footballers, they are role models. Um, and here was somebody who was clearly caught out behaving appallingly. And yet um, it was almost overlooked in the interests of the sport. Uh, and that's a classic example of how the kind of the desire to achieve and succeed is put ahead of character and what is right. And I think the public reaction to that spoke for itself, yeah. that here is this footballer who has behaved in this way. Um, he's played, um, I think there was universal criticism of David Moyes' decision to uh, to do that. Ultimately, the player um, was then suspended. He's been fined wages. His cats have been taken away by the, the RSPCA. So I, I think in a way, the public reaction speaks for itself that that was a foolish decision mm. that seemed to put commercial interests um, ahead of um, the, the behaviour of, of, of the player in that instance. And somebody who has behaved in that way so shamelessly it's extraordinary that it's videoed and it's shown and there's a, a lack of shame over it and an apparent lack of understanding mm. of the seriousness of what it, what is done, that, that then they are allowed to continue as, as if um, there's no uh, kind of a fault there and that the, the interests of the club, club come first. And again, I think that just reveals to us the dangers of where there are abusive behaviours or flaws in characters, uh, overlooking that out of the interests of pursuing uh, the kind of the bigger uh, mission. I'm interested, I was listening to a, a, an interesting kind of interview with Henry Winter, the football com commentator, who was speaking about this. He said this was un un uncharacteristic for David Moyes, but he was talking about how um, uh, sort of Kurt Zuma, in effect, needed to genuinely repent of what he'd done, mm. needed to recognise the seriousness of it, um, and then to take action to make atonement for it. And he was speaking about, for example, going and working with the RSPCA mm. in, in London and seeing the animal cruelty that they're having to deal with. And at one level, that's a well-trodden path for people who um, have behaved uh, in uh, appalling ways to, um, uh, in a sense, both acknowledge their wrongdoing and then to seek to, in some way or other, make atonement for it. I think that reveals something of the desire in our society to have a way that people can be forgiven and can be restored and a recognition that some kind of atonement is needed for that. I mean, I think of John Profumo, who after his spectacular fall from um, kind of government, um, uh, basically ended up working, um, caring for the homeless and the poor and in, in a way... Uh, not so much redeemed himself, but did take action that showed that he wanted to serve differently. And I think that points is actually something, something deeply biblical, which is that we are all um, are ultimately sinners who deserve God's judgment. So um, uh, sort of Zuma's behaviour was caught on camera and was seen. How many of us, if absolutely everything we did in our life, would not find ourselves in a very similar situation? Mm. Um, and it's just that we're not in the public eye and therefore that is hidden. But the reality is God sees everything that we do. Um, and we need uh, a way um, of being uh, sort of forgiven um, because the only alternative is judgment and being and being cancelled. And of course, the great news of the gospel is that that atonement is made for us by the Lord Jesus who dies in our place mm -hmm. so that we can repent and receive um, forgiveness through him. So I, I just think 
there are lessons here about leadership. Um, uh, there are uh, sort of lessons for us about not covering up flaws in character, misbehavior. Um, but at the same time, we need to remember there is the possibility of redemption mm. and restoration um, uh, for those who truly face up to the reality of what they've done. It's interesting because all the footage of the Kurt Zuma thing raised questions for me also about kind of taste and decency. Everything can be filmed and could end up anywhere. Um, you might not want it to, but that's exactly what happens. Just moving on from that, thinking of taste and decency, did you pick up this thing this week about Jimmy Carr and the comedian who'd done a Netflix special where he'd said some absolutely appalling things uh, about the Holocaust in the name of comedy. Uh, and quite rightly, um, it has received criticism from from all sides for that. What, what does that reveal about the human psyche that people are watching that as entertainment? Uh, many people laughing along with him on the Netflix special, some saying things have been taken out of context, but bluntly, it's an appalling thing to say and for people to laugh at it. I just found extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's a, a very distasteful joke um, uh, at the expense of a particular uh, kind of racial or, or ethnic group. Mm. And you kind of think it's extraordinary that he would ever have thought that was acceptable as comedy. But we have to be honest, people um, are, are quite happy to um, laugh at things which are distasteful, offensive uh, about other people. I mean, there have been plenty of comedians in the past whose comedy was laced with sexism, racism, homophobia, um, and people found that very... Um, uh, uh, kind of funny and they, they wanted to pay to go and see it and to watch it. I'm a comedian called Jethro who died recently, who'd made a whole career out of jokes of, of that order. So we shouldn't be surprised. There is something about the fallen human heart that loves to mock others, um, that, that, that laughs at their expense, um, at which puts them down. Um, uh, and I think we need to recognise that that is part of our human fallen nature. Um, uh, uh, in society, uh, some of those uh, aspects of racism, sex, and hom homophobia have been rightly identified um, as the offensive things things that they are. So it seems extraordinary that a comedian of the profile of Jimmy Carr would be willing to do that, mm. or indeed that Netflix would be able be happy to broadcast that mm. um, uh, 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 as if it doesn't matter. I and mean, if the, if the joke had been about, for example, um, the, the Jewish people who had been killed in the Holocaust, one can hardly imagine that that would have been sort of um, uh, uh, acceptable. Mm. So I, I think there's a there's a real thing here about the the, the 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 way that we view others, the way that we kind of use use comedy, uh, the dangers of using comedy, um, and whilst we might believe in principles of free speech, that is not the same as saying that we think it's right that you can say whatever you want, no matter how offensive it is um, to uh, others. And I think that's again been revealed here, and the public reaction has been pretty negative um, towards Jimmy Carr for making jokes. Um, of that appalling nature. You mentioned free speech there. Is that a kind of Christian principle that we should be fighting for? So it's often said that if we start saying people can't say X, Y, or Z, then that will uh, impact Christians in what we, we can and can't say uh, about the gospel, about the Bible, about some of the teachings in the Bible that, 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 are, that are not um, uh, approved by society more widely. Where, where do we stand as Christians on that free speech principle, John? I think free speech is quite a difficult one for Christians to um, think uh, through. Um, uh, I mean, in principle, I think we want to ensure that we have freedom to be able to proclaim the gospel, and therefore we have an interest in the preservation of uh, a kind of um, free speech. Uh, but at, at the same time, uh, I think um, 
Western societies that have uh, triumph, uh, sort of um, held free speech as a very important thing, free speech has never never been unqualified. So for a long period of time, for example, blasphemy was a criminal offence, which was a limitation on free speech because of the way that speech might offend Christians and, and religious um, believers. Um, uh, we have uh, legislation that prevents hate speech. So um, there's a difference between uh, freely expressing your opinions and stirring up hatred towards groups and towards um, uh, others. So uh, an absolute concept of free speech is, um, in, in any society, quite difficult to defend because speech can be used in a way that harms and hurts uh, sort of others. So I think any society has to balance the, the maximum freedom to be able to express your opinions, whilst recognising that sometimes those opinions might be deeply damaging to um, the community and, and to others. So I, I think it's not a simplistic case of absolute free speech or um, uh, controlled speech. Um, so I think as, as Christians, we want to advocate and support for the maximum amount of freedom of speech um, without allowing people to be in that position of stirring up hatred um, uh, 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 against others, giving um, uh, sort of unnecessary uh, uh, sort of offence um, to others. There's also a question of, of where, where does free speech happen? The, the fact that there might be a principle of freedom of speech doesn't mean that that it can be exercised in every context. So um, uh, that doesn't mean you've necessarily got a right to say whatever you want on the television or on the radio. There's some pretty tight rules about what you're able to say. That doesn't mean to say that platforms like Twitter and Facebook um, uh, necessarily have to give voice to everything. We know that social media platforms are under considerable pressure to kind of um, not um, uh, profile speech that is hateful, oppressive, or to control certain types of speech, like, for example, encouraging suicide. We don't want a principle in which freedom of speech enables those platforms to be used in ways that might cause significant harm um, uh, to others. And obviously, there are commercial pressures as well. So um, as, as we can see in the reaction to, for example, Jimmy Carr, if people transgress um, uh, in, in the way that they use their speech, there may well be the withdrawal of commercial support um, uh, uh, from that. So um, there are certain things that are particularly protected in society. I think um, our freedom of speech is closely bound up with our freedom of religion, and those two things go together. So um, actually our right to be able to preach the gospel is bound up not just with issues of free speech, but it's actually bound up with issues of um, freedom to worship, freedom to engage in evangelism. Those are important rights that actually I think the Bible says that we ought to stand up for and fight for. And it's certainly the case that as we do that, sometimes we need to stand up for others to have the right to speak in ways that we find offensive. So if we want freedom of religion for ourselves, we have to uphold the right to freedom of religion for um, other religious groups, even though we might believe those religions are false um, and that they're leading people uh, away from God. Um, uh, so we can't expect a privileged position, I think, particularly in our secular post-Christian society for Christian speech. It's one of the problems that America has what they would call absolute freedom of speech, and it doesn't quite translate to Britain in the same way, does it? So you've, you've already said the laws are tighter here than they are in the States, but we imbibe so much of American culture that, that perhaps we don't always realise that. Yeah, I'm not an expert on the constitutional position of free speech in America, but that does seem to have been a, a greater value in the States. 
um, and the, the degree of control in, in the UK, the ways that free speech can sometimes be kind of constrained within the wider public interest does seem to be uh, kind of tighter in the UK than in, in the US. And actually where that particularly kicks in is in relation to broadcasting. So mm. in the UK, the laws about ownership of radio stations, television stations and things like that ha- has been much tighter, yeah. which has uh, sort of meant that in the public sphere, you don't really have the opportunity to speak in the way that you might have had in, in the States. Of course, actually, the internet has changed that significantly. So again, one of the things we're wrestling with is having had a quite tightly controlled media in which um, voices that were offensive, although you uh, in public and in the street or in your home or whatever, you could say what you like. It wasn't easy for them to get a wider public um, hearing. Now through the internet, it's much easier for those voices to be heard more widely. And actually, I think um, governments are wrestling with the challenge of how do we cope with this new environment of democratization of speech through um, the media? Um, I think just Again, thinking from a Christian perspective, one of the things we've got to bear in mind is absolutely right that we want the freedom uh, of speech to be able to declare the gospel, share um, uh, what we believe. That doesn't mean to say that we as Christians should seek to be offensive in the way that we do that to others. So I think um, sometimes as Christians, we, we, we can too easily fall into the same ways of speaking that the world would use, the same anger, the same humour, the same humiliation of others. And we think that that's kind of legitimate. But I, th- I think we need to be much more thoughtful about how we speak. We want it to be the truth of the gospel, the truth about Jesus, the truth about judgment, the truth about sin, the truth about the cross, which is offensive, not, not the ways that we might speak. So um, I think we need to be, um, as Christians, in a sense, willing to restrain freedom that we have in the interests of winning people over to the gospel. Offensive the gospel rather than being offensive in the way we deliver it. Absolutely right, John. I want to um, bring us into land by talking about sports for a few minutes, if I may. Uh, lots of sport going on at the moment, particularly the Winter Olympics. I believe you went to watch some basketball a couple of weeks ago, John. I mean, you're six foot eight. Did they get you on? Uh, no, um, it's not enough just to be tall. Uh, you actually oh. have to be kind of competent and you have to have agility um, and all that sort of stuff. So I'm afraid I was always a disappointment to everybody at school uh, for sport. All my PE teachers would see here's somebody who's really tall they're yeah. bound to be really helpful and then I was just useless so you and you don't have the athleticism I certainly don't <laughs> oh, coordination enough. is uh, kind of lacking well there we are John so you didn't get on when you went to watch the basketball but have you been watching the Winter Olympics uh, we've watched little bits of it so um, not a great deal I mean most of the sports in the Winter Olympics I think it from a British perspective these are not sports that genuinely most of us yeah. play or follow um, uh, actually I, I've watch some of the highlights programs and just aware of a a massive variety of sports I didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. So the old days of growing up watching Ski Sunday when it was kind of downhill and slalom, my mum was into uh, kind of ice skating. So um, actually people like John Curry and Mm -hmm. um, Robin Cousins. In Mm -hmm. fact, actually John Curry was at my school. And the great story (laughs) in my school was that his PE teacher told him to stop doing all that skating because he'd never make anything of his life if he wasted his time on that. (laughs) Of course, he went on to win win an Olympic gold medal. Um, Ice dancing was really big in the 1980s, Torvald and Dean again, Mm. my mum was really into that. But Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's a whole range of things like um, uh, kind of the snowboarding, uh, uh, which I just really have never seen and, and 
it's not been a frame of what I what, think's happening sporting-wise. One of my mates got married in Poland and we went snowboarding and I paid for a lesson of snowboarding and I thought, I'm not paying for it anymore. That I could not understand that it wasn't like skateboarding. So you're because you're strapped to it, with a skateboard, you can just jump off. But with a snowboard, you're strapped to it. So you just basically just fall on your backside for the whole time you try and do it. So uh, yeah, those guys are very, very talented. Uh, snowboarding is not easy. The curling is the one that uh, I think you've been most enjoying, uh, John. This is launching a stone uh, down a, an ice rink and then sort of vigorously uh, sweeping your kitchen floor to try and get it to a target. It just, it's mad, isn't it? Well, before Adrian sort of isolated himself because of potential COVID, he did get us to watch the curling he while did. we were having lunch together. Um, and actually, I, I, th- I think it's quite, it is interesting watching it. It's, far, it, it's skillful. Mm. Um, uh, and I think uh, actually it encapsulates that sort of uh, kind of those things of sport that we love, which is the element of skill, an element of competitivity, a joy in succeeding. Mm. Um, uh, and I think all of those are part and parcel of what it means to be human and how we've been designed as those who are physical. Um, and I think certainly from a British perspective, we watch curling because we think it's one of the events in which we've got a chance of winning. Yeah. So we've kind of, we've, we've kind of in a sense got skin in that game in a way that we <laughs> haven't with lots of the other events in the, in the Winter Olympics. I think where it's interesting from a Christian perspective, just to get serious for a moment is, I think when you start watching sports that you don't really understand, it's very easy to become an armchair critic. And actually you sit on the sidelines and you say, oh, that's hopeless. Oh, I, you know, you've no idea how difficult it is. And I think there is some principles there for us to think about from a Christian perspective. Sometimes we, we don't understand how difficult other people's situations are. And that might affect the way that we lead uh, or the way that we interact with people in, 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 an, in an unhelpful way. We, we can't be armchair critics of people, can we? Well, I think that's right. We can't be armchair critics of people because, um, uh, sort of, as you say, we don't know everything um, uh, about them. Um, uh, and I think we can rush to judgments without having knowledge. Um, uh, so I, I think there's a real lesson for us there of taking the time to understand um, in, before we make those judgments. On the other side of the coin, there's also a sense of wanting to actually um, appreciate in evangelism uh, how little people might understand of the gospel as we seek to communicate with them. So when I'm watching curling, I'm also reminded that I don't understand the rules. I don't understand what's going on here. Um, one of the things that um, sort of just struck me is that you were playing these different ends. Suddenly there was a power play, which seemed to change everything. I've got no idea what that is or what the rules were or how that worked. Um, And I need it to be explained to me. Mm. So at one level, the commentators on the television are explaining this sport to me as it's happening and helping me to know what's going on, what the rules are to appreciate it. And my appreciation is increased the more that I'm helped to understand. And I can't just do that myself from um, watching it. And I think think that actually has implications for us in, in evangelism. So I think for lots of the people we're engaging with, particularly in a non in a in a post-Christian world, they have absolutely no understanding of Christianity. They have no understanding of what it believes. They have no understanding of its frame of reference, its fundamental presuppositions. Actually, there's an awful lot of work to help people to un- understand those. Um, and in some ways, we are actually like enthusiastic sports commentators trying to encourage others to be enthusiastic about what we're enthusiastic about, Mm. to help them understand what's going on and why um, we love it and why we think it's so important. So I think there's something of a lesson there about the way that we seek to communicate Christ to others. Uh, And rather like the Winter Olympics, where many of the sports might be ones in which we've had no interest and we don't know what's going on, that's often what we're seeking to do is Mm. we seek to share the gospel with people. When I used to do football commentary, the guy who taught me the craft, he said to me, never force the game. And what he meant by that was only be enthusiastic when there's something to be enthusiastic about. 
Well, we've got lots to be enthusiastic about when it comes to sharing the gospel, doesn't, haven't we, John? So that's fantastic. What a great place to finish. John, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Thanks, hope this John. has been helpful to you. This has been Independence, the FIEC podcast. You can listen to more and subscribe on the in the usual ways uh, and it's on our website as well.